Well, six weeks ago, we started this journey together with a quote from C.S. Lewis. And I want to read it again to see if we can hear his words a little differently now after these weeks studying heaven. He said this, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most in the present world were just those who thought most about the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. So the purpose of these weeks together has been for us to consider what does heaven mean for earth? And my prayer for us as we've walked through this time of focus on heaven, is not just that you would have a new passion for heaven, not just that you would know more information about heaven, but so that you will know how does heaven connect to earth now. My aim has not been just to give you facts, information, and to help you understand what the Bible says about heaven alone. That's been part of my goal. The ultimate goal is so that you will know what the connection is between heaven and how you do your work on Monday, how you love one another in the atrium, how you see temptations through a different lens. So if heaven is like that, then how do I live now? That's the question that we've been trying to get at. Over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the following. From Colossians 3, by way of review, we saw Paul's command to set our minds on things that are above to seek those things that are above. In Revelation 4, probably one of my favorite texts that I've been able to preach on the last number of years, just lost myself in the theme of the glory of God and what it means to behold him. Third week, we talked about resurrected bodies from 1 Corinthians 15. I hope that when you see little sprigs of corn that are coming up from fields in our area here that you think that in the new heaven and the new earth, the resurrection will seem as logical and as normal as when you plant a seed, stuff grows. So I hope you see a field and think about heaven. And then we looked at the new heavens and the new earth from Revelation 21 and 22. We learned that God's forever people are going to live in God's forever place under God's forever rule. And then last week, we looked at the matter of glorification or perfection, the moment when our entire being, both body and soul, reflect the glory and the image of Jesus Christ. The aim has been to spur on your thinking about what it means to live here and yet not be too connected here. By that I mean to realize that you are a citizen of heaven and you are a citizen of the United States, but to not confuse the two. In fact, in the month of June, we're going to look at the life and ministry of Daniel. What I want to do is take this series on heaven and then show you a person who found a way to live in a foreign culture, 
climbed the ranks of power, have enormous influence, and yet always lived with realizing that I may serve the king of Babylon, but I ultimately serve the king of kings. And so we're going to take a couple weeks, about four, to look at his life and how he worked that out along with his other companions. Today we're drawing this series to a close, and the particular focus of our time is simply this, that the future has implications. Our text this morning is 2 Peter 3, verses 8 to 14, and there are two words in particular that are very important. Verse 11, the word since, very important word, and verse 14, the word therefore. When, when you're reading your Bible and you see words like these, words like since, words like therefore, words like for, you, you need to look carefully because what's happening, those words are usually a marker or a signpost that something has been said and now there's an implication. So if you want to read your Bible with a level of personal implication and personal application, look for words like since and therefore and for. And what we find here is that Peter is explaining some things about the future, and additionally, he draws out some implications of those things. And so, today's message is entirely about these implications. You see, the reality is, what you believe about the future has an effect on your ethics right now. For instance, if if you're here and you're not a Christian and you don't believe that Jesus is going to come again and you don't believe that there's going to come a judgment and you don't believe that heaven and hell are real, that does have an effect on your morality. If you don't think there's any accountability for your actions, you uncouple where you live from that future and as a result, it affects your understanding of morality. Another example, if you believe that God is just going to save everyone, that there is no hell, that will affect your passion to share Christ in regards to evangelism. It will. And if, as a follower of Jesus, you believe that Jesus has saved you from your sins, if you believe that he will return, if you believe that he could come back at any moment, and if you believe that you will live with God forever, that has to have an effect on how you live right now. And what I want to do is I want to probe a little bit some implications of this idea of heaven. The reason that Peter is writing, we're jumping right in the middle of this book, so let me just give you a very quick background. The reason why Peter is writing is because he's concerned that persecution is going to come to these churches that he's writing to, and he's concerned about his own death. He wants grace and, grace and peace, rather, to be multiplied to these churches to whom he is writing as they face the possibility of real persecution, and he wants to combat false teaching that is being thrown at them that's causing them to lack confidence in God's plan for their lives and, Peter fears, will cause ungodly living. There are people in the arena of these churches who are questioning their belief that Jesus is indeed going to return. They're scoffing at it. Look at 2 Peter 3, verse 3. It says, knowing this, first of all, 
that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. See what's happening? Scoffers are coming in and saying, Christ isn't coming back. Everything has just continued how it has for thousands of years. So what does Paul do to that? What does, it, or brother, what does Peter rather do to combat this particular charge? What he does is he, he calls them not to forget God's promise. He calls them to remember. He calls them to keep waiting for the return of Jesus, to keep looking for it, and third, to live righteously. So those are the three things by way of implication of what heaven means for earth that we're called today to remember, to keep looking, and to live righteously. Let's unpack this. Number one, remember. Peter begins by calling these churches to remember the promised plan of God. Verse eight, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as, as one day. So what was happening here is that these false teachers combined with challenging circumstances, were causing these believers to doubt that Jesus was indeed coming back. Do you understand that? I think if you're honest, there's not a single person in this room who claims to be a follower of Jesus who hasn't thought at least once or maybe many, perhaps maybe many times, you've thought, you know, is he really coming back? Because after all, he hasn't come back yet. So how do I know that he's really going to come back? And what Peter is concerned is that if these people will fall into this doubt and if they will succumb to this doubting mindset, once they doubt that, they'll begin to doubt the Bible's really even true. They'll begin to doubt if the moral ethic of the Bible is indeed right. And they'll begin to doubt if they really even need to live righteously. Peter sees these things as all strewn together. If you begin to doubt that Jesus is indeed returning, if you begin to doubt that indeed there's going to be a day of judgment, if you begin to doubt that heaven and hell are indeed real, it will affect how you live. So Peter says in verse 8, do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Now we're going to look at what he says in a moment. The, the main word I want you to just focus on is the word overlook. That word means to fail to recognize, to fail to call to mind, to, to forget something or for that thing to be unnoticed. Sometimes the word can be used when something is forgotten accidentally. Sometimes it can mean that you overlook something because it's hidden or concealed. But in this context, there's more culpability, more responsibility to that word overlook. The, the idea that Peter has in mind is you, you fail to call something to mind that should be remembered. It's, it's something that you know, but just over time, you, you become either so familiar with that knowledge that either you begin to just not count it as really as true or as central as what it needs to be, or you just by, by virtue of eclipse have other things that occupy your mind and heart. So in illustration, when, when a parent hands the keys to the car to a teenager and says to him or her, remember, no speeding and no texting. 
It is not that the teenager doesn't know that those laws are on the books, but it's that other things could enter in and eclipse the reality of that rule. To overlook it would not mean that you didn't know it. To overlook it means that other things have become more prominent in our minds or prominent in our hearts. You want to look cool. You want to drive fast. You want to multitask, listen to the radio, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the things that begin to eclipse what you know. So the idea of overlook is to cause to neglect something that you should know. Now, it's interesting, the same word is used in verse 5, that the false teachers deliberately overlook this fact. They deliberately overlook the fact that God has acted in human history by virtue of creation. They deliberately overlook the fact that God has acted in judgment in other important moments in human history. And so these teachers are deliberately overlooking this, and Peter is exhorting the church not to fall into the same trap of living as if the future is not determined by God. Don't overlook that he has a plan. So what does Peter not want them to overlook? Three things. First, in verse 8, he wants to remind them that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years to us. Don't overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. In other words, it's just a matter of what your perspective is. Any person who's ridden in a car with a child knows that this is true. (laughs) And in the illustration, we're the children saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? I sat next to Savannah at a musical last night, and she kept saying, how much longer till it starts? How much longer till it starts? I said, three minutes. And then 30 seconds later, how much longer? Two minutes and 30 seconds. Has it been three minutes yet? No, honey, it's not been three minutes yet. I wanted to quote to her, a day with the Lord is a thousand years, right? So that's what this means, right? I'm thinking about this while answering and trying to parent her. The point, God is at work in a different timeline. So if you're going to judge history based upon what you could see, you make a huge mistake of thinking That somehow your assessment of reality is reality. And Peter reminds them, God has a different timeline. Then secondly, there's also a purpose to God's timeline. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, God has a plan, meaning that there are people that he aims to save yet, and those that he intends to redeem to himself have not yet put their faith in Christ, and so therefore he is waiting for them to come to faith. And aren't you glad God waited until you came to faith? So before you get all doubting in your soul about the lack of Christ's return in your lifetime. Remember, God's got a plan. A thousand years to him is as a day. And God is on a mission to redeem people. And then third, he says that the promise of what is to come will come suddenly and unexpectedly. It'll be a surprise. Verse 10, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, we we covered this in the sermon on the new heavens and the new earth, so I don't want to take time to unpack this again. The thing that I do want you to see, though, in verse 10, is that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The point is, is that 
one of the hallmarks of judgment is how surprising it is. That human history is just kind of going along, going along, going along, and people are going, he's not coming back, he's not coming back, he's not coming back, he's not coming back, and then boom, he comes back. And that surprise is part of the divine plan. Revelation, or rather, Matthew 24 says this, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Nobody goes to a surprise birthday party, and as the person is coming in going, wait, 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 she doesn't know we're here. <laughs> it's the part of the surprise party is the surprise. No one shuts down the surprise because that's why you're there. And what Peter is saying, part of the stunning coming of Christ is its surprising and unexpected nature. So, therefore, the church should not be shocked when people live as if there is no future judgment. As the island of evangelical Christianity gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and as Christians become more and more marginalized in the community, and as more and more people doubt any kind of return of Christ or any kind of judgment, that ought not to cause you to doubt the Bible, even if you're in the minority. Because the text tells us that it will be a surprise that most people when Christ returns, are going to be shocked. So Peter is calling this church to not be shaken in their faith if people scoff at the return of Christ. In fact, if more and more people scoff at the idea of the return of Christ. But the problem isn't just them, it's also us. The problem is not that we don't believe heaven is real, the problem, more often than not, is that heaven becomes something that we simply overlook or that we don't think about. You know what happens, the pressures of life, the good things related to living on earth, the affections that are within us and things that we attach our affections to can be way too closely tied to things of earth, and we end up creating a scenario where day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, we live as if heaven is really not that real, as though Jesus is not coming back, and as if there is no day of reckoning. And then all it takes is a skeptic or a cynic or a scoffer to make some offhanded remark, and our faith begins to falter. And Peter says, no, remember, he's coming back. Remember, Jesus is coming back. Remember, don't overlook that one day is a thousand years. Don't overlook that God's got a plan to redeem people, and don't overlook that his return will be surprising. Secondly, the call in this text, by implication, is to keep looking. And the idea here with the word waiting is that the church needs to have a posture of anticipation and waiting for, and even, according to this text, hastening the coming of the Lord. So Peter calls us to keep looking, to keep looking, to keep looking. So here's what I want you thinking about as I'm walking through this next little section here. What are you looking for? Like every day, what are you looking for? What do you want? What are you longing for? We just sang a few minutes ago, even so come, Lord Jesus. Is that true? 
Is that, is that true? You want him to come? You really want him to come? Is that something you can sing and, and say, yes, I want you to come? One of the reasons that it's helpful to sing things like that is it reorients our heart to say, oh, that's right, that's what I want. Because last night I wasn't thinking about that. And I'm not suggesting that every moment of every day you're thinking about Jesus' return and thinking about heaven, but what I am saying is that I hope that this series has caused you to think more about the return of Christ and how you long for it as opposed to just getting settled in and putting your roots down in this lifetime. So verse 11 is the first of two signposts. Since all of these things are to be dissolved, what kind of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? We'll cover that in a moment. And then verse 12, a very important word, waiting and hastening the coming day of God. That word wait, obviously it means to look forward to something. That's what it means even in the original language here. It also can mean to wait with a sense of anxiety or excitement or anticipation. And the point is that believers are to be marked by a posture where they are anticipating the return of Jesus. In fact, they're looking for it. This is important because, as we'll see in a moment, that looking, that waiting is connected to godly and holy living. In fact, I would suggest that there's, there's probably some of you who you, your life is not marked by godliness and holiness, and one of the reasons is that you only have an earthly mindset. You're living for the next thrill, the next thing, you got to get yours. And so you're trying to get your thing, whatever that is now, and the fact of the matter is you are made for more and by looking for the wrong thing in the wrong arena, it's opened up a Pandora's box of all kinds of wrong desires. The problem is not just what you do, it's what you're looking for. And so Peter says, wait for it. Look at verse 13. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. There's the connection between waiting and this godliness that we'll look at in a moment. But three times in like four verses, Peter uses the word wait, 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 wait. In, in the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek translation of that, the word wait is used for trusting in God. The word wait is used for hoping in his salvation. So the idea here is that the heart is set on something. Something is occupying the affections of the heart of a Christian such that he or she is waiting. When you wait for something that you're really looking forward to, it, it's not hard to have it occupy your mind and heart almost every day. This is the time of year where there's lots of weddings happening. I see lots of engaged couples and keep running into them. Then I usually ask them, how many days? How many days till you get married? And invariably, they, they know the, the, the number of days. At least, at least the girls know the number of days. <laughs> I encourage guys, know the number of days. It, 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 it'll set you off on a right um, footing. One couple here this morning who, when I asked him the question, said he knew the exact date. And he said, the reason I know the exact date is because I'm reading a psalm all the way down, counting down to my wedding day. I love that. So whatever day it is, they're counting down. I imagine Psalm 119 was a long day, right? So, so they're counting down, reading a psalm all the way down. 
waiting for their wedding day occupies the heart and mind of an engaged couple. It's so important that it easily becomes something that you think about. And one of the things that I've hoped has happened is to elevate your affections and your love for what is to come so that it occupies a little more space in your mind and heart than what it has before. What we're being called to here is that we would take the long view to realize the beauty of the new heaven and the new earth, the beauty of God's glory, and that we would live with eternity in mind. You see, the nature of temptation is to offer us immediate and fleeting pleasures. And one of the strategies to take the luster off of a temptation is to see how shallow and fleeting it is. Temptation comes across your path. Oh, I know it looks good. I know it offers you joy. No temptation comes to you and says, do this, you'll feel guilty for the rest of your life. Temptation says, come, do this. This will make you happy and fulfilled, and this will give you what you really want. And one of the ways to combat temptation is to see that lie for what it is and to live with an eternal perspective. This is what the writer of Hebrews says about Moses. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for, is that word again, for he was looking to the reward. So if you want to have it all now, that will uncouple your morality from the Bible. And for that matter, this is one of the reasons why you need to inundate your mind with the Scriptures, because what you look at and what you look for begins to shape your heart. Your eyes reflect and shape the trajectory of your soul. And so when you spend time in the Word, it's not just to learn more information about the Bible. When you read the Bible, it's so that you can see things that will shape your soul. So when you come to the Bible, before you read, ask God, God, help me shape my heart by what I read. When we sing together, what what we do together is we're using, using English language to put words to what we believe so that we can see things that will shape our soul, so that you come together, when you sing together, even so come. You may not not be there like you need to be, but someone else is near you, and they're there, and they're being ready to sing that song helps pull you along. Some of you come into corporate worship, and there are little aspects of doubt that run through your soul, and all it takes is the right word through a sermon, a right prayer that's offered, or a right song that's sung, and suddenly in your heart, your confidence is bolstered as you're like, oh, I see it again, I see it again, I see it again. That's what the Lord's Day is. It helps you to see. You don't believe me? Well, you just see what happens to your soul if you remove yourself from a regular gathering of God's people for about three to four weeks. I promise you, you will not have the same level of confidence in terms of the promises of God being true. That's why throughout the Psalms, particularly Psalm 119, it's filled with passionate pleas for God to connect the word with the eyes of mankind. Just listen to what the psalmist says. Psalm 119, oh, that my ways may be manifest, or may be steadfast, rather, in keeping your statutes, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. 
Psalm 119, 15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Psalm 119, 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Psalm 119, 37, turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. See, looking and longing for the right things inclines your heart toward righteousness, and in some way, it factors into the plan of God that in that looking, we not only hasten the day of the Lord's return, but in looking and in remembering and in focusing, it helps to connect us to what it means to live righteously. And that's the third reality. Remember, keep looking and live righteously. The final charge in this text is frankly the reason almost for the entire series. Verse 11 has gripped me for a long time. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness. That is a very important verse. If heaven is like this, then how should I live? If Christ really is king, what does that mean? If the day of judgment is real, what does that mean? If heaven is real, what does that mean? If Christ is going to come and return, what does that mean even now? And then verse 14, he presses it even further. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and be at peace. So what Peter is doing is is connecting that their godliness and their righteousness and their holiness have a direct correlation between what they think about heaven. In other words, if you really believe that Jesus is coming, and if you really believe that hell is real, and if you really believe that a day of reckoning is a part of God's overall plan, if you really believe that, that that then should cause you not just to be interested in all the features of heaven, but to know that one day we will bend the knee to the king of heaven and therefore order our lives in light of his rule even now. Otherwise, the Bible is just a book with information. It wasn't meant, God doesn't tell us about the future just so that you can know more about what's going to happen. He tells you about what is going to happen so that you can live a godly life now. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, we're to add things like virtue and goodness and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and brotherly love and affection, that, that, that the followers of Jesus are to be characterized by these things that fit with his eternal kingdom, that there is a necessary connection between the new heavens and the new earth and how we live now. Granted, we won't be perfect in this lifetime, but if there's no connection between what heaven is like and where you live right now, that's a huge problem. In fact, for some of you, it may be that this whole series has been part of just awakening, awakening you to the need that you need to believe in Jesus. It may be that you've come to realize that your sin is a, an issue, and you've become broken over it, and it may be that God is drawing you to himself, and my question would be to you, why not come to Christ today? Why not put your trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins? Why not believe in him as your Lord and Savior and be at peace with God? That's what it means when it says, and at peace. It means to be at peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So what does it mean to be godly? What does it mean to be holy? Let me, let me give you some connections. There's many of them, and I just have a few of them that I want to share with you. There's 10. <laughs> and there's a lot more, but this is my attempt to show you how heaven and what it means connects to where we live right now. First, you may be a believer in Jesus and you've never gone public with your faith in Christ through baptism. And I just want to encourage you and exhort you that that first step of obedience commanded by Jesus is the first of many steps of obedience. And why not go public and say, I'm a follower of Jesus. And in that symbolic act that has enormous messaging in it, that you identify in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Secondly, it could be that you've sat on the fence about becoming a member of our church. And if heaven is a gathered people, then the church is a foretaste of what heaven will be like. You need a people then, but you need a people now. You need a body with whom you identify, a body who affirms that you really do understand the gospel, a body who holds you accountable, and people who communicate collectively to the world what it means to be a citizen of heaven. Third, there may be some of you that this series has opened your eyes to how little you really desire or think about heavenly things. And maybe part of the reason why you think so little about heaven is because your mind and heart are so occupied with everything that's earthly. And it could be that you need to confess to the Lord that honestly, I like earth better. I like my stuff. I like my chair. I like my job. I like my TV. I like my internet. I like my Facebook. I like my Twitter. I like Snapchat. I like my money. I like my car. I like my dog. These are the things that I love. And you may confess, these are gifts, but they're not ultimate. And some of you may need to say, you know, I need to fast from some of these things. Let me shut this thing down for a little bit or create some space to think about things above. Fourth, the beauty of heaven is the glory of God. And that glory of God is that which is supremely valuable and what is really lovely, and that glory of God, that's what's really worth pursuing. And by meditating and thinking on the glory of God, it helps us to not pursue false glories. If you don't know what God's glory is, then you'll be more inclined to pursue glories that are fleeting and don't truly satisfy. So when we seek self-centered praise, when we seek the affirmation of others, we are seeking glory. We're seeking a counterfeit glory. In our desire for power or our desire to be in control, we are seeking a counterfeit glory. We stand in front of the mirror and think thoughts that aren't right about what we see coming back at us in the image. We are looking for glory in the mirror or in our lustful pursuit for nakedness all around us. Why are you pursuing nakedness? Because you're looking for glory, and it's a misplaced glory. Let us remember that real glory 
is God's glory so that we can be a holy and godly people. So when you see something beautiful or something attractive or something that seems lovely, remember, it is a fleeting glory of another greater glory. Fifth, if the new heavens and the new earth is the gathering of God's forever people in God's forever place under God's forever rule, we should remember and celebrate that the regular gathering of God's people on the Lord's day is a small taste of what heaven would be like. So when you come on Sunday, you should come regularly. You should come expectantly. You should come with a focus, not just to have your needs met. You should come with a focus. I've come to meet with God come to seek his face, to have my life reordered under his rule, to leave this Sunday, this very Sunday, with this thought, why does God have me here? What did I learn about him, and how should my life be bent in more conformity to him and his image? Frankly, if you don't like Sunday, how in the world are you going to like the new heaven and the new earth? It's Sunday every day with no sermons. Don't say amen. Number six. There's got to be teaching. I mean, there's got to, if you'd like to learn, there's a section for you, right? If you'd like to play, there's a section for you. There's got to be learning. I just, I don't know what it's going to be like, but no one's going to be preaching at you. So I got to get it all in before we come. So number six, (laughs) number six, if God is gathering, listen, if God is gathering a forever people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue, and if all the nations will bring their glory into the, New Jerusalem, into the New Jerusalem, then we ought to realize, beloved, that the church of Jesus Christ is made up even now of people from every ethnicity and racial background. The beauty and diversity of heaven demands that we put aside ethnocentrism, racism, And we need to work hard and harder to love one another despite our different backgrounds, our different appearances, and our different experiences. Heaven is going to be beautiful, so the church should also reflect that beauty, not just in the future, but now, and not just like now, like in the atrium now. Like go and talk to somebody who looks different than you and love them in the name of Jesus. Number seven. If you really believe that the new heaven and the new earth are real, if you believe that your ultimate reality and reward is in heaven, then it should be reflected in how you give generously. And I don't mean just to this church. I mean, the church should be a part of your giving structure. But I mean, if you're holding on to money, you're in effect saying, I live for this world, not the next one. And one of the most significant ways you can sever your love of the earth is to give your money away. Jesus said, lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. He tells us that there's a connection between where your heart is and where your treasure is. In other words, a failure to give, listen carefully, a failure to give, a failure to be generous is a statement about what you really believe about heaven. Number eight. Since our citizenship is in heaven, according to Philippians 3.20, we can live as good citizens of this country while not wrapping our affections too tightly around the rise and fall of this republic. Don't get me wrong. 
You should be engaged in helping our republic to reflect biblical values. You should pray for your leaders. You should vote. You should express your concern and your opinion in a winsome and articulate way. You should dialogue with people with whom you disagree. You should seek to be in a position of influence when you can help be like Daniel and shape the culture. But as you do so, be sure that you remember that your real home is not here. You're citizens of another country, and your king does not reside in Pennsylvania Avenue. Number nine, when suffering or persecution come, we can be a godly people who rejoice in hardship and rejoice in mistreatment because of the glory that awaits us. You can be like, that's okay. Let them let say that. Let them do that. This is, I'm not living for this world. Let them count me as scum of the earth. I'll wear, that, I'll wear that bumper sticker. I'll, I'll wear that T-shirt, scum of the earth. I'll wear that because generations upon generations of Christians have had that label put on them. When in God's, when in God's hard providence you experience the loss of something, you can rest assured that the sufferings of this world, this world, are not worth comparing to the glory that we will be revealed in us. The hard thing about suffering, though, is it shows us how attached we are to this world. And the beauty of suffering is that it helps to remind us, oh, that's right, I don't own my life. And I don't rule my life. I'm not my own, I was bought with a price, and my king is Jesus. It's not me. And number 10, heaven matters for daily godliness in that your love for Jesus in the future, like you love, you want to be with him, it creates a longing to be like him even now. It means that you can see the vision of the future, and you can read Revelation 21, Revelation 22, you can hear the, what I'm telling you about heaven, and somewhere in your soul you say, yes. Yes, I can't wait for that day. And that also means that if you can't wait for that day, it means you get to get started being like Jesus right now. So, my aim has not been just so that you'd know more about heaven. My aim is that you would know how to live on earth. And so hear the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 when he says this. I hope this is your mantra. Indeed, I count everything as loss. For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, and for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but by that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. Here's his prayer. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Aim at earth, and that's all you get. Aim at heaven, and you get earth thrown in. Set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And when he appears, we will appear with him in glory. Father, help us 
to not just listen and not respond to you today. Help us to be a people who ask the question, God, what is it that you're saying? Turn us from our sinful ways. Turn us from our unbelief. Forgive us for doubt and strengthen our faith, we pray. And help us as a people to encourage one another on in godliness and in holiness. Help us to be a people who are marked by a righteous living that's focused heavenward. So, Lord, thank you for your word. Continue to change us, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.